What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I would like the label industry to get with JNH Production as for its contracts pertaining to Cincinnati beginning the tour and show that he will go on for the label industry pertaining to shows city to city that will be given under him and the label industry. <laughs> Telling you, bro, what's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy Hey everybody, welcome back to Riff Raff. Shane Terrio here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks for asking. You know, uh, kind of serious times here. I'm not going to make any jokes about this, but the coronavirus pandemic is in full swing now. So I hope everybody is safe out there. I hope everybody's okay. Um, Hopefully this podcast will give you a little bit of relief maybe mental relief if you're looking for something to do if you're being sequestered or during lockdown uh let's see um yeah as always you know hit me up on instagram guitar nola or um facebook shane terrio music i'm thinking about doing a q a if you have any questions about the podcast or anything hit me up contact at shane since we're episode 35 i may do a best of let me know your thoughts. guest today is my friend Greg Vorobiov, aka and better known as Greg V. Greg's one of those guitar players that just, he's proof that tone and feel are in your hands. I mean, 
that saying, uh, nobody exemplifies that more than Greg. It, you know, if, if you want to see this in action, check out one of the many YouTube videos he has up. Before everybody and their brother were, was doing, you know, equipment demos and stuff, Greg was one of the pioneers of this. He's probably sold a lot of amps. I know I bought one because of Greg. My amp repair guy asked me if I knew Greg V. I said, yeah, I know him. And he said, I hate that guy. I bought two amps because of his videos. I mean, he really makes everything sound great, as you can hear. This is from his record, Tailgate Troubadour. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about his early gigs. I mean, legendary gigs. Ronnie Montrose. Greg played with Ronnie Montrose. Buddy Miles. Double Trouble. He was the guitar player on Baywatch. Plenty of great stories in this episode. As of late, Greg has blossomed into a really amazing photographer as well. Um, he's just channeled his creative creativity into just another another outlet. Uh, he shot the cover for Lynch Mob record, and he's done a lot of cool musicians in Los Angeles. We'll talk about all this. So on a, on a beautiful afternoon, I head to Greg's house in Burbank, California. We sit down with a couple of acoustic guitars in his living room and just shoot the bull like two friends do. I hope you enjoy these great stories and this episode.
unresolved. I love it. All right. Yeah, it's the story of my life. Unresolved. <laughs> All right. I'm sitting here with my good friend, Greg V, in lovely Burbank, California. Man, thanks for doing this, Greg. Well, uh, this is truly uh, an honor and a pleasure, man, Shane. Um, you know, we've known each other for quite a while. We have these epic conversations, so it's kind of, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be good to document it. You know, we might want to have this tape turn into like Mission Impossible where it just smokes out after 60 seconds or something. <laughs> uh, man, I'm trying to think. Um, the first time I, um, I think the first time we met was in Nashville. And I was like, Greg V. I thought it was Greg Five at first. I was like, Is that where John Five ripped off the name from? Greg Five. <laughs> no, I was just messing with you. But, uh, <laughs> it, could, it could be. I mean, I consider it more like, you know, it's like Malcolm X, Malcolm the Tenth. I heard somebody call him that in grade school. Like, I'm like, Greg V. I think it's <laughs> Greg Five. I'll take Greg Five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, man, you know, you're one of my favorite players. And Thank you. Thank you. And as as late, one of my favorite photographers as well, that you've blossomed into this great photographer, man, shooting all these great portraits of musicians and all kinds of really cool shots. And um, Thank you, Shane. I mean, um, don't go, I feel like you say, don't Shane. You know, don't Shane, Shane. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like, you. you know, people um, know you for all the gigs. We've, we're going to talk about all, this, all the cool gigs you've done in your life. Um, but also, you were doing, when I met you, you were doing all these amazing gear, equipment videos, and amp videos, and a lot of cats were like, what happened to that cat, man? Yeah. He's like ripping, he's, yeah. you know, and the stuff's still up there, so it lives on. And, the uh, internet never forgets, right? Mm -hmm. So good or bad, you know, it's, it's in the ether now, you know, which is actually kind of cool, because you don't know where that stuff could land. Um, yeah, doing those demos was an interesting thing. Um, it got to the point... Uh, as you mentioned, I was in Nashville, um, and this was like, I moved there in 06, so it was around 09, and, you know, the internet had been winding up, but YouTube had just been a few years in, in, in its development, right? And there were some guys doing demos, and it just got to the point where uh, I didn't want to go on the road as much, you know, mm -hmm. touring. And I was new to Nashville, so I wasn't really established as a player there, so I didn't have a lot of, like, session work. And things, even though I'm not a session, quote unquote, session guitar player, I've been fortunate to play on some different things over the years and TV shows, etc. Um, but I wanted to keep playing music. I want to keep playing guitar and be creative through my instrument. And I thought, well, this YouTube thing's kind of cool. You know, I can sit at home, get up in my underwear, go downstairs, you know, turn on a camera after putting pants on, you know, <laughs> and, and make some demo videos. Yeah. And, and then I realized, hey, companies will pay you to demo their gear. And that's a key word, though. I, I always would make the distinction that I, that I demoed gear. I didn't do gear reviews. Yeah. You know, reviews are a slippery slope because you, you almost have to say it sounds great or sounds amazing. And if you want to keep working with that company or something, sure. I, did the, I did more of a neutral position, which was a demo, which was all about here's how this instrument or amplifier or pedal sounded on that day with my hands playing it and um, I would never hype something I never wanted to be like some chamois guy you know three in the morning and right. like Mr. Haney from Green Acres you know <laughs> hey, this, this is the best pedal ever you should buy this and then come next week you hype a new pedal and then you lose credibility you know people yeah. stop believing like can you trust me 
And that's important to me that I just demoed it. And um, yeah, and, it, and that led me into photography because mm. I started making, um, I wanted to make really good pictures of the product that I was demoing. And uh, that started me into understanding light and then starting to want to know more about the technical side of photography, you know, and lenses and like I mentioned, lighting. And, and that led me down this rabbit hole where I am now. Mm-hmm. As, uh, sort of reinvented myself as a photographer wow well man that's a lot uh, that you've been doing with photography but i want to back up and talk i want to talk about greg your beginning um you were born in you told me san francisco but you kind of grew up all over like florida was one of your yeah well my uh, my dad was a uh in the army Mm -hmm. so i was an army brat so we lived in japan we lived in um uh, majority of my early upbringing was in Woodbridge, Virginia, which mm. is right at uh, just outside DC. So it's like big guitar country there. You got Danny Gatton, Bill Kirchin, you know Roy Buchanan, yep. and um, I didn't really know. I knew those players at the time, but I didn't really realize how epic they were because I was such a young player, you know. Um, but it was a really interesting place growing up there because you, you're sort of at the the nexus of. Uh, you know, Appalachian bluegrass roots yeah. music and the sophistication of some of the the more jazz elements, which is Danny Gatton's a perfect example of that, you know. Yeah. And um, and then my parents, yeah, they came home one day. I was in, uh, just started high school. I think I was about 15. And they said, hey, we bought a farm in Florida. And I was like, this, this is great. We're going to, you know, palm trees, Polynesian women on roller skates, you know, back <laughs> in the 70s, you know, this is going to be awesome. I get down there, they bought a farm, a 40-acre farm with catfish ponds on, uh, in the panhandle and um, with 600 people in a small town called Laurel Hill, Florida. <laughs> and I loved it. I mean, I, I still love it. Um, I don't live there, but I've been back to just visit and um, having that land and Roman and, um, you know, school was easy for me. It was almost like remedial in my last couple years of high school. Sorry, eighth and ninth grade. I moved down around 10th grade were almost like I, I, you know, I just did the school again because the schools were kind of behind back then, you know. And the good thing about that was I could practice all the time. Mm. So I started playing guitar in Virginia when I was about 13 and a half. Consumed like we all were, you know, um, six, eight, ten hours a day. And, um, you know, the whole bit, crappy acoustic guitar to start with. And I bought like a $50 electric guitar (laughs) with lunch money that I saved up literally. And then, um, um, a funny story about that time was, uh, I was taking guitar lessons and, um, for which I took for about a year and I took in my crappy guitar and I had a vinyl gig bag. And my teacher's like, well, you know, your guitar is going to get damaged. You keep coming over here, just banging it and everything. And you might want a good, good case. So my birthday was coming up. I'd been playing for six months every day intensely. And um, uh, my parents said, well, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, well, I want a good guitar case for my, my crappy guitar, yeah. which to me was the best guitar in the world because it was my guitar, right? And um, so we go to a local music store called Zavarella's Music, which was, I, I don't think it's around anymore. But we go in there, and I'm like, I'm 14. And my dad, being a military guy, was very strict and stern and like taught me to, you know, you got to talk to people. You know, you have to be your own guy. So I go up to the counter, small shop, and I go, excuse me, sir, I'd, I'd like to buy, you know, a case for my guitar. It's my birthday. Right. And my parents are here. And um, he's, like, he's like, well, let me see the guitar. And I unzip the bag. And he's like, 
he started laughing and I had no idea what he was laughing at. And he was, uh, he was just, he's like, kid, I could sell you a case, but it'll be worth more than this crappy guitar, you know? And I just felt like, you know, a boob. Well, my whole life just deflated. And my parents looked at me and said, well, as long as we're here, why don't you look around, you know, the shop? Because we drove all the way out to the, you know, the big city to look at this music store. And uh, so I go in the back room. There's only two rooms. And it's the kind of store that's all dusty with cases piled up. And you could probably go in there with a sack of potatoes and a, a box of uh, macaroni. If they were hungry enough, you could trade something for that. It's a really small-time <laughs> shop, you know. And it wasn't a chain. And so anyways, I grab a Les Paul Custom. A black Les Paul custom off the wall, and because it was uh, air, I had I had um, gotten Peter Frampton's Frampton Comes Alive, which I love. That I still love that record. I still love Peter Frampton. I actually auditioned for him when I was in Nash in Nashville. Now oddly got the oddly yeah. got the gig, deservedly. Um, anyways, I plugged the guitar in. I'd never heard reverb before because I was plugging in my dad's reel-to-reel tape recorder as my amplifier, and it sounded terrible. So I plugged in reverb, and I was like, "Oh my, what is that?" And the salesman was like, "What?" I said, "That." And he, he's like, that's reverb. And uh, to this day, I'm mesmerized by reverb. I love reverb. So my dad comes over. I'm playing for 10, 15 minutes. And he's like, what do you, what do you think of that guitar? And I was like, oh, it's just like Peter Frampton's dad. So, you know, Frampton comes alive. Isn't it beautiful? He's like, well, get your new guitar. Let's go home. Mm. And he, so he bought me that Les Paul Custom. And my parents, you have to understand, were like Depression era. They were, they were very... Um, you know, military guy, not a lot of money for fa- for family members. So, I mean, sorry, four siblings, six of us. And that was a big deal. Mm. So I got that guitar and I couldn't believe it. I'm going home with my brand new Les Paul Custom. And, um, and, and then a few years later, uh, when I moved to San Francisco, it was promptly stolen. Oh. All my gear got oh, stolen. Oh, man. And that's a, that another was one of, the, thing. one of the guitars. Right. Oh, God. And I, so I hope... You know, anybody out there with a black Les Paul custom, <laughs> serial number 491-498-7475 year. Uh, that's true. That's my real serial number. Please get in touch. I wouldn't wow, mind buying it back. I do. Serious. I clean. I polish that thing every night, you know. And uh, I, you know, I rusted through the little wire on the tunematic bridge and all the gold was coming off. But, yeah, I, I you know, so... Yeah, so that was your first real accident. That's my first that. real guitar, and um, it was still to this day. My dad's passed on now, and it's the one thing that I would really like to connect back to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was it was a Norlin era. Probably mm-hmm. wasn't a great guitar mm-hmm. compared to even some of the custom shops now. But it's got you know I don't attach a lot of sentimental value to mm-hmm. things, but there's something about that now that my dad's sure. passed on. You know, it'd be nice to have that one back. You know.
Yeah. Took that to Florida. Went to school, which is a breeze. And the greatest thing about um, moving to Florida at that time, when I was like 15, 16, I think, was, uh, as my parents said, I could play in a band as long as I kept my grades up and I didn't mess around in school. And so I did. I kept my grades up because it was so easy. And then I started playing with much older guys. That's a whole other story. They were like 10, 15 years older than me. And I started playing all along the panhandle yeah. from like um, Tallahassee all the way over to Pensacola. And there was a ton of military bases and biker bars and stuff like that. I saw a guy get stabbed in front of me. Crazy shit went on down there, you know. And I was, I didn't even drink. I wasn't even of age. But at that time, you could play in clubs and the owners looked the other way. Cops never showed up unless there was somebody getting shot or stabbed. And um, so they didn't mind me being underage because, you know, I was helping make them liquor sales, you know, with the band being, and it was a good band, you know, so, yeah. Well, the other night when we were playing around and you you started playing Leonard Skinner, and I I didn't realize that you were such a big fan. That's definitely a Floridian. uh, Yes, uh, yeah. You know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Phenomena. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I think so. The Gainesville area yeah, right? yeah. or Jacksonville. Yeah. Tom Petty Gainesville. But I didn't realize you, you were such an Uber fan. And um, Huge. I always liked Skinner. Like I was telling you, I think they were sort of a, sort of a, I don't want to say redneck, but sort of a country version of, uh, of uh, ACDC. <laughs> but in the, and I mean it as a compliment yeah. because the two, you know, twin guitars or triple, they were, it, the stuff sounded really worked out, but in a good way. It, was, yeah. it wasn't like they were just up there. It was parts. They it, exactly. Parts. They worked it out, yeah, right? Like you said. And yeah. they're, they're, it's, you know, I mean, God, imagine if you go to a blues jam now and there's two or just two guitar players, let alone three guitar players like Skinner had for a couple periods in their, in their early years. You go to a blues jam, you know, those guys are just stomping all over each other trying to be yeah, heard. Yeah. It takes a lot of maturity and restraint for those 20-something Gary Rosington, Ed King, which came in a little bit later, and Alan Collins in the early days. Right. That they were really mature players even beyond their years to, to contain themselves and understand it was all about the song. And that's always been something critical to me about songs. So, yeah, Skinner, man... I don't think I hear any of that really in me, but playing those licks and learning those songs, they were, they, were, they were interesting songs to learn because they were, once you got a little bit of skill going on, like I could play Freebird at six months of playing guitar. I could work the solo out. I learned all my pentatonic boxes and those chords are simple. They're not sophisticated. Yeah. So you could hear stuff and you felt like you were on top of the mountain when you could play like, um, any of their songs as a young man, like hearing it and going, I used to listen to it, but now I can actually play it. Yeah. I've actually reverse engineered the art that I'm hearing into the mechanics and playing it, you know? So even like something as simple as like, you know, um, I don't know, well, Simple Man, you know? Um, I play a little bit of that, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's, just a, it's just a fun, mm-hmm. you know, arpeggiated riff. Like... like day playing that as poorly as I just did um, 
takes me back to being mm-hmm. 13, 14 years old again. Sitting on the edge of bed and getting home for school. And, and, and drop, yeah, and, and exactly, and dropping the needle like we all did before yeah. you had what we have now and being able to slow stuff down. You drop the needle a million times, slowing it down, you know. And even like, still to this day, when I, when I uh, restring my guitars, I tune to the double, you know, notes of uh, Sweet Home Alabama. And I was talking to Ed King when I lived in Nashville, who's, who's just recently passed away. So Who played sadly. the guitar so long. He wrote the song, yeah. right? He wrote the riff and the guitar. Brilliant guitar song. I still can't play that. There's some weird phrasing going on there. Um, the, um, here. I don't remember. It's been so I played this. Okay. Three, four. I don't remember. <laughs> I remember they added this out. Oh, okay. All right. I thought you were going to... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. It's almost like dobro licks yeah. the way he did, way he did that, like right? That, yeah. But I mean, even that intro. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. And those are like, still to this day, those are, um, you know, to my last day on this planet, I, I'll, I'll still smile when I hear that, or mm-hmm. if I could play it still. It's, it just takes me, like you said, back to being a little kid again. And then I can hear the, uh, the girl background singers. Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> okay, this, this brings me seg- <laughs> is a fine segue opportunity uh-huh. into your your um, shit the bass player. What's his oh, name? Leon Wilkinson. The Leon Wilkinson story. Yeah. So, so why don't you share that? Okay. All right. So this is this is one of these. I've got a handful of these kind of stories where you're your little kid in Virginia and Florida. You have these records, you're staring at them, you're playing them, you're learning, you're just dreaming of seeing them in concert, which I never saw Skinner. And then fast forward many years to the mid-90s, 97, actually 98, um, around there, my wife and I had moved to Hawaii and I was playing in a really, really good cover band there called the uh, Piranha Brothers. And uh, we were playing one night in a place called the Irish Rose and... um, sort of our staple place to stay there a lot and a lot of locals that would play there wasn't like a touristy place it was like hardcore locals and there was a rumor that Leon Wilkinson was in town coming in to score a little bit of Hawaii's finest maybe you know and um and we were on break I turn around somebody's like bang Leon Wilkinson just walked in and I look around and there's there's the man right I recognize him did he have one of his hats <laughs> no no I wish he did I wish he had one of the policeman hats or the top hat or something yeah he was he, he always had a cool look back then and um big mutton chops and aviator shades and stuff he was he was cool all those guys were just cool to me man and um so I go up to him and I say hey Leon I'm playing in a band tonight uh, if you want to stick around, we'd love to have you come in and sit in on a couple tunes if you want. So, oh man, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just here to meet a friend real quick. You know, I'm like, okay, well, cool. But, you know, you know you're welcome to, please, if you feel like it. You know, he's like, rah, 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 rah. So um, he was kind, but he was just sort of like short, right? And so I didn't want to bug him. I didn't want to bother him. 
And I told him I was a huge Skinner fan and all that. And I got in a fight with a kid who loves Led Zeppelin and said that Zeppelin was better than Skinner. And he said, well, did you win? I said, yeah. He's like, hell yeah. Hey. You know? yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so we started playing. Um, and I don't remember what song it was. But, you know, I had my head buried in my guitar. I did a solo. And I look up after my solo and five feet away, I mean, it's a small stage, tight club, packed. He had moved up to the front of the stage, was five feet away, and he's like, yeah, Greg, tear it up, man. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. I mean, literally, he's holding his drink up. And I was like, man, I felt like, I felt like on top of the world. I, I was getting validation from a childhood hero. And he's there, and he ended up staying that night, you know, all night. We played Simple Man. We played Magic Carpet Ride. Um, and some other tunes, and it was awesome. And he played his ass off. He really was a good bass player. And then later, we hung out all night till seven in the morning, and went back to his hotel room. And he was telling me stories about the, you know, the crash that took the lives of Cassie Gaines, Steve Gaines, Ronnie Van Zandt, Dean Kilpatrick, the two pilots, which was devastating. Um, he was in the crash. He was in the crash. The plane. Went down like the rest of the band and survived, obviously. And he told me about how he was flatlined. Um, I think he said three to three times or something wow. at the, so he died and he told me about how he dreamed of Ronnie Van Sant had come back to him sitting on a log fishing yeah I remember that and wow. so we we hung out and he was like man you got to move to Atlanta let's put a band together I said Leon whoa 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 you Skinner's still going strong you know you guys are still playing a ton of dates he's like yeah but you know it's like we got something special man didn't you feel it when we we're playing I'm like yeah well, yeah of course you know and he's like well, you, you think your wife would let you move to Atlanta and I'm like yeah, I don't know about that. You know, she moved back to L.A. because where her family's from. So we kept in touch um, a few times over the next year or so. And not long after that, he, he died. He passed away. And um, so another tragic ending to another Skinnered yeah. original member. Uh, but still, to kind of come full circle after all those years of playing those songs, knowing their, their music, intimately and playing them live uh, in clubs and then to have that validation from the man who was sure. a part of those was was really cool yeah you know and yeah that's a great story i think you know since we've uh we're deviating from the uh chronological timeline method of my podcast uh we can chops. go back on no, chronological no, no, no. I love I, no 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 i don't like to do i can talk faster anyway. no no <laughs> i think because i'm trying to get i want to get the people that you've worked with and some other stories. So I'm just going to drop names of people that I know that and, and projects and things. And then you just tell the, tell your, you know, some cool stories, but like, okay, okay. I'll just say you worked. Um, well, a lot of people don't know this, but Greg, if you watch his gear demos or have his records or whatever, but he was the guitar player on Baywatch for years. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I did about three, four seasons of that. Um, How did that come about? Just talk a little bit about that. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. This is, this is one of those things like you get where the connective dots of things in life and you never know where opportunities can come. So always be open to things that might come your way. Um, I, I was living up in, uh, well, I graduated uh, high school in Florida, right? Yeah. And the day after I graduated, I literally packed a car and moved to San Francisco. And I got a job not long after in um, a music store called Bananas at Large, which is a, still in existence, but it was a really cool, funky store that was in Centerfell uh, over in Marin. And a lot of big name 
rock stars would come in there, like Neil Schoen would come in, um, you know, Grateful Dead guys would come in, and you know, other Journey guys, well, Ross Valerie, the bass player, and Tony Williams came in one wow. time, and I used to keep a cassette tape of my guitar playing in there that I would give out to anybody I thought could get me work. Oh. It was just random bits of just cobbled together stuff, you know, things that I played on and whatever. And one day, a guy named Corey Lirios came in, and he was a keyboard player in a band called Pablo Cruz, yep. which had some, you know, some sort of regional hits, I guess, maybe back in the 70s. What you gonna do when she says goodbye? Right? And I remember seeing them on Don Kirshner's rock concert, was a 70s show, when I was a kid. And then, so I'm there, that's Corey Lirios. I recognized him from playing the white piano. He was a piano player, keyboard player. I gave him my cassette, and he said, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, uh, yeah, thanks, man. I said, well, you know, if you think of anybody like my playing, Corey, please, please refer me. I'd love, I could use the work. And um, he disappeared, you know, when, and uh, about 10 o'clock at night, my phone rang that night. Wow. And, um, hey, Greg, it's Corey. I'm like, Hey, Corey, how's it going? He's like, man, I listened to your tape. You're, you know, you're a really good guitar player, man. We should get together and play sometime. I'm like, yeah, man. I mean, maybe ne next week maybe or something. Maybe now. How about now? And that's what he said. <laughs> that's exactly what you're psychic. And he, and he said, hey, well, how about now? It's 10 o'clock at night. Come on out to my house in Stinson Beach, which was Jerry Garcia's old house at the top of the mountain. Wow. Stinson Beach is over in Milwaukee. It's worth millions of dollars. Be I mean, it's just a beautiful homestead. Yeah. Anyways, I go there. We play... Long story short, we, we just played for, I don't know, maybe a year. And he always said, man, when I get, I'm working on trying to get TV show work. And when I get it, I'm going to bring you in. You're going to be my guy. And I thought, well, great. I was just having fun hanging out yeah. with the cat and hearing his stories and playing with him. And then he got, the first gig he got was uh, this TV show called Max Hedrum, which is sort of a futuristic, cool, dark, kind of a dark show, actually. And these days with you know, uh, the internet and dystopian sort of elements, it, it, it would be a big hit, I think, if it, something was revised. Anyways, he got that. So we did the only season of Max Hedrum. And still to this day, uh, um, I'll get emails or something. People heard heard the intro or something on the internet. And I listened to it. I'm like, that's, you know, that's my old Mesa Boogie amp at that time sounded yeah. pretty good on that intro. Yeah. And then Corey got Baywatch. So that was a really long answer to get to Baywatch. No, that's so, great because I wanted to cover Max Hedrum too. That's cool. Yeah, and so Corey is like, and then, then yeah, Baywatch was, um, it was sort of a, it was it hadn't, you know, he, I think there was one season of it prior before Corey. Then he became the composer. He brought me in. And it was all the early stuff like Pamela Anderson when there were plots. <laughs> I'm kidding. Never, no plot. Just slow motion, silicone running down the beach, you know, and abs for days. And um, yeah, and it became the it became the biggest show in the world at the time in syndication and all that. 
And um, I, I, was, I was talking to a friend uh, recently a, a, about that. And I was like, man, you know, at the time, I didn't really promote myself as like playing on this show. Like, you know, it was just a show and I was making some bread and I was thrilled. I didn't think anything beyond that, like trying to hustle more work out of it. Just, you know, things came here or there. But it's not a cool show. It was never a cool show. <laughs> and... You know, it's sad because I wish I was like, imagine if I was playing guitar on like Breaking Bad or some iconic show. Hill that Street be, Blues or something. Or something that, yeah, that really holds up well. Um, that early fluorescent shorts and neon green tank tops and stuff and mullets just doesn't, didn't last well. Well, maybe you know? it's, yeah, I don't know. God <laughs> hey, in Germany. So maybe. Yeah, exactly. Well, that should tell you something like, yeah. and, you know, it's like Jerry Lewis is, you know huge in, in France but I mean I'm not I'm glad I did it I'm grateful yeah, I did it really I mean you cool. can never it's just sort of like God why didn't I play yeah, on like some iconic show or something you know And then you did you meet Randy Jackson in San Francisco? Yeah. And Randy Jackson, for those of you that don't know, he's a very famous. Well, he was originally a bass player. He's right. from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A lot of people don't know that. His brother Ermin is a great drummer. Uh, but Randy, well known as American yeah. Idol. But I mean, before that, he played with yeah Billy Cobble, Billy Cobble, Journey, yeah, yeah. Elton John. I mean, he's a session guy, yeah, he's a session. live guy, turn session guy. But you were his guy for a while too. Yeah, you know, Randy's another funny story. Um, God, I mean, you want the anecdotes on these? Like, Hell okay, no, that's what this all right. Is. So, I was playing. Okay, this is in the mid '80s in San Francisco, so around '85, somewhere like that. I'm, everything's sort of on the fringe of my brain now. But um, I was playing with a really popular. Bay Area artist named um, Bonnie Hayes. She, to some of you guys may know, there was a cool movie called Valley Girl with Nicolas Cage in the early mm -hmm. 80s. She had some hits on that song, like Valley Girl with Jesse's um, boyfriend, um, or Shelly's boyfriend, sorry. And um, she went on to write a bunch of songs for Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time record, mm -hmm. which won like a bazillion Grammys. You know? And Bonnie now, I think, teaches at Berkeley. I think she's like the songwriting chair or something at, at Berkeley College of Music. Anyways, at that time, she was sort of just coming out of the punk world of San Francisco, and I got the gig with her because her brother, Chris Hayes, who was a Huey Lewis guitar player, had been a judge in a guitar grudge match contest <laughs> that Mike Varney put on. Wow. And Mike Varney used to have this label um, called Shrapnel Records, where he had all these shred guys. Um, Paul Gilbert, uh, Racer X, and Tony McAlpine, all these amazing players. And um, I won this guitar contest that Mike Varney put on. And Chris was one of the judges. He came back 
stage after the thing. He's like, man, I love your plan. Hey, listen, my, my sister needs a guitar player. Like now, I'm going to put your name in the hat, call this number like tomorrow. And I got the gig. Wow. Long story short. So um, I played with Bonnie, which was great because everywhere we played, there were like a thousand, fifteen hundred people would show up in clubs, which it just doesn't really happen much anymore. That day is so far gone. But back then, people, you know, Friday night, we're, we're going out. Everybody went out. There's no internet. And so I got tons of visibility. And one night we played where a band called Bourgeois Tag opened for us. And Bourgeois Tag was a killer band great musicians and one of the you know main members and writers was a, a guitar player named Lyle Workman who's ridiculous sure. you know I, I know you know you've met Lyle and does all the soundtrack work yeah. now and stuff and well I um it's it's, it's sorry getting long long-winded but I'd heard that Randy Jackson was uh from a friend named Joaquin Lieveno who was a great guitar player with Jean-Luc Pane um, back in the day and he played with Randy and I knew him and he said hey Randy's looking for guitar players you know just I guess people you just want to work with and maybe um, you know different session things or whatever he had going on so I got Randy's number from Joaquin called Randy one day and he's like hey, leave a message you know it's Randy Jackson yo yo dog you know whatever and so hey Randy it's Greg Vorobiev uh, I was go wasn't going by Greg V at the time it's still my my old my original name um and he picked up the phone as I'm leaving a message. And he's like, hey, were you the guy playing guitar with Bonnie Hayes a couple nights ago at the, where was it? Uh, it was a, a club called Wolfgang's. Mm -hmm. Playing with Bonnie Hayes the other night at Wolfgang's. You know, I said, yeah. Um, he says, what, with Bourgeois Tag opening? I said, he's like, oh man, I love your playing. We got to get together. And, um, and from the first night I met him, like it was actually two days later, I remember. Um, he said, well, can we meet like, like, you know, I think it was like a, a Sunday I called him. He's like, can we meet Tuesday? I'm like, yeah, man. And I said, oh man, wait. He's like, what? You got something going on? I said, well, it's my birthday. And he says, oh man, I want to take you away from your birthday. I was like, listen, I got nothing going on. Your girl. I said, I don't have a girl. You know? So we met that night on my birthday. He brought me a stack of albums. Just met him and he walked in with this big pile of albums that he gave me for my birthday. Wow. And it was such a gracious kind moment um and there were just things he thought i might like you know trying to influence me maybe a little bit but like screedy politi and you know some cool european dance bands and things like that you know and it was just really cool and we hit it off and ended up doing a lot of demo work uh, playing on some records that narda michael walden executive produced and randy you know was the producer on and they kind of call me in the blow like a rock and roll solo over a dance track, kind of like Beat It or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. And then um, that led to um, other work because as soon as you got uh, validated by Bonnie Hayes and Randy Jackson in the Bay Area, people just said, hey, are you available? They didn't ask if you could play or anything. Right. Yeah, it, gr right. it brought me credibility. Yeah, cred, yeah. I thought of something else while you were, I'm trying to make a mental bookmark here. Mm -hmm. You were saying you won the guitar contest mm -hmm. in Shrapnel and Paul Gilbert. Right. Why don't you talk about Paul Gilbert? Because you were Paul Gilbert's roommate. Well, no. Bruce Boulay's roommate. Yeah, right? yeah, I, okay. But you knew Paul Gilbert. Yeah, okay, so, okay, because of that um, guitar contest that I, that I mentioned called the Guitar Grudge Match, which was crazy. There were like 300 guitar players I think entered in it down to 30 and then you know yeah, you, and it was amazing before, yeah. and 
man, uh, like, and I got like a DiMarzio deal out of it from Steve Blucher, from doing, and he started making me custom pickups, and you know, that's what, you know, so uh, that, that, it was a lot of cool stuff that came out of that. And one of them was I was featured in this column called Spotlight, which mm-hmm. was in Guitar Player Magazine back in the day, and Mike Varney's column, he right. wrote that. And he sort of had unknown guitar players, and the deal was, if you were featured, you had to um, put your address, and if somebody emailed you, not email, somebody mailed you a letter, you'd have to send them a tape, a cassette tape of your playing as right. a thank you. Well, I got a, a letter in the mail from a guy named Paul Gilbert, from I think it was I think it was Pennsylvania yeah, or something like that. Right. And I open it up, I read it. Hey, my name's Paul Paul Gilbert. You know, uh, some students of mine got your tape, and they said you're a really good player. So. Uh, please send me yours. And by the way, here's my tape. And he enclosed the cassette. I put it on and I was, oh my God. Who, what? what, what who am, I, am I listening to like Paganini or something? Like a pr- truly prodigal plane came out of my, my stereo. So much so that I called him immediately. He put his phone number on the letter and I called him. He's like 16 years old. And he's like, hello. I'm like, hey, is this, is this Paul Gilbert? He's like, yeah. Hey. I said, hey, it's Greg. Vorobi office. Oh, hey, you know, um, I said, what are you doing? I mean, like, I'm already like, I'm probably like 20 years old or something. And, he, and he's like, well, I'm going to be moving, you know, to, to go to uh, GIT, right. the guitar school in, in Los Angeles. And I said, well, I'm going to be moving to L.A. soon, man. We should meet up, man. I think you're an epic player. And I just love to say hey in person. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Look me up, blah, blah, blah. So a few months later, I think it was, I moved down to, to L.A., living with Bruce Boulier and uh uh, John Alderetti, who was an, a, a, a bass player friend of mine, he was going to BIT, which was the Bass Institute right. at the time. And we'd be, you know, um, so John and I used to, you know, play in a band in San Francisco. And I put up a letter, you know, or a post-it on the, in the MI board. Like, hey, you know, Paul, looking for Paul Gilbert. Greg Robeoff moved to town. Here's my number. So he called me. We got together and we would just hang out and play Scrabble till like four in the morning and uh, he was funny, he was very unique, and he was, of course, a monster talent. And um, already, uh, um, he asked me if I knew any good, you know, uh, bass players and drummers. And I mentioned uh, uh, my friend Bill, who was a, a really good drummer, but he didn't work out, but he loved already. And so already got the gig with Racer X for the, that was the new band he was putting together. And we would sit around and play guitar. Um, and, but Paul, of course, was on a whole nother, I wasn't a shred guitar player, you know. I mean, I could, back then, I could shred for about 25 seconds. Right. And then my liver would hurt. You know, I'd have to pull over on the side of the stage and, like, hold my side, you know. And these guys could just go for hours, right. And I didn't have that. I, I was, that wasn't my, my bag, right. And, um, but I did, it's funny enough, um, I showed him a lick, a guitar lick. We were jamming and I, and I didn't think anything of it. And then, Years later, he mentioned it in a guitar column, and I even heard from a friend of mine that there was a tape circulating, circulating around when he would play this lick on like his master classes or whatever, mm-hmm. years later. And um, people would be like, what's he doing? What is all that? And he gave me, he said, oh, I stole that lick from Greg Vorobioff, you know, a guitar <laughs> player in LA. And um, it's, it, was a, it was a funny little lick that I thought was just sort of like a throwaway well, thing. Well, now you have to play it. Correct? Well, all right, okay. It's, it really should be played on electric. Yeah, sure. Because I need the reach of the, you know, the extension. But, right. 
Uh, I'll try. I mean, damn, I haven't played well, this one. What about time. this guitar? Is it easier? No, I'll try. I'll, I mean, I'll. Well, oh, yeah, okay. so you're playing like all the same note on each. Yeah, so, so what it is, I'll set it up. Um, I didn't have a delay back in the day. So I was, I was like messing around one day, like, man, I, I don't know how I stumbled on it, <clears throat> but I just started playing the same note on different strings, descending and ascending up the guitar. And it ends up sounding pseudo-delayed, not like a proper delay. Right. And it's not like something you could use all the time. It's just, like I said, a, sort of a circus trick. And, um, and it sounds like a ray gun, too, if you mm. play it right. And like I said, I haven't played this in forever, so I'll, I'll stumble through Well, I through. can always do it. Okay, so. Okay, here. That's <laughs> so crazy to watch. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, you can repeat that if you want, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, so. <laughs> so yeah, it's it sounds it sounds like crap on an acoustic, but when you have gain yeah, yeah. and you and you have the actual full extension of the note to slide yeah. that last note all the way off the fingerboard, it was kind of cool. And play it like I used to, you know two or three times faster now. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. It's kind of cool. So it was just funny, a little wow, little cool thing with Paul Gilbert, you know, who's a really sweet guy and he's funnier and shit. I went bowling with him once, you really years ago. He came to Atlanta. Dude, I was teaching at the GIT in Atlanta. I was yeah. like 22 years old. And he he had just... Racer X, they were going to Japan. I remember that. Mm. And he went to my friend's house, Bill Hart, to do laundry. And we all ended up going <laughs> bowling. <laughs> yeah. He went to Mr. Big Concert and he got us backstage. And I was just a young punk back wow. then. And I was back there and I, I said, wow, it's beer. Wow, everything's back here. It's all free. <laughs> And I grabbed this Dos Equis. I didn't know what a Dos Equis was back then, but I grabbed There was one left, and I grabbed it. And Billy um, Sheenan's looking at me like he's about to kill me. Like, that's my personal beer. Yeah. And I just grabbed the last one. Like, <laughs> who are these people back here? Exactly. And I remember Paul was just, he was warming up orange juice in a microwave. Wow. Warm I don't know. I remember mm -hmm. that. I was going, this is not rock and roll. Like, and we were behind the buses. He was like, man, the, the exhaust, these buses, you want to breathe it. Yeah. He's like, wow, this is not rock and roll at all. Well, we, like I said, we would, we would play Scrabble. He was killer at Scrabble. And he, he would, you know, he, would, he was just a funny guy and he was young. And, um, but he was intense in a good way. You know, you could tell it was like he was driven. And, of course, his playing was, at that, in that era, was... Um, extraordinary i mean still is but but you know there were only he was just sort of on the cusp of that early shred stuff you know so um and he was really sweet, sweet i remember guy. i had a tape of my own that i was working <clears> on and i forced him to sit down and listen to it at my friend's house and he did he was cool you know he listened to the, we listened to the whole thing but it, you know I don't, I don't really know him but that's a cool story man my favorite one this, this isn't two-handed but i just try to get the same note on every string <laughs> I don't know any other guitar players that have played, like had the story you've had. Like, okay, who else? Uh, um, well, the first you want to start with was Ronnie Montrose. Ronnie Montrose. Then, then Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles. And then, and then Double Trouble. Right, right. You're going to edit all that out? No. Just... I'm just, I mean, I'll clean it up a little bit. Okay. But like Ronnie Montrose, why don't you talk a little bit about Ronnie Montrose? Because you were on the, you were at 
on the road with Ronnie Montrose. Right. I got, yeah, and this is 1988, so this is, um, it's my first real tour. I mean, I'd been playing maybe a bit up and down uh, California's coast regionally, you know, with like Bonnie Hayes and stuff, we play a little bit, you know, up and down, mostly in the Bay Area. But getting on an actual, going out for months was my first gig was Montrose. And I uh, auditioned for him in my living room. He came over. We played. Wow, Ronnie Munch just came to your He place. came to my living room. And some uh, a, a bass player, I think it was maybe Glenn Letch, uh, was a great bass player. I think he was in um, Gamma with Ronnie. And he played in a lot of different... I think it was with Robin Trower. A great bass Sammy player. Sammy Agar, too. Sam, oh, there he yeah. is. So you know. Okay. And Glenn um, liked my plan, recommended me to Ronnie. He came to my house. We just played a couple songs. I don't remember, I, I remember what it was. And he got up. And I thought, oh, okay, man, I'm a sock. You know, he didn't say anything. And uh, he goes, okay, all right, well, you know, I'll see you on Monday. And I'm like, as he's like opening the door to leave. And I'm like, so, so what do you mean? My, like, I have the gig? Did I get the gig? And he's like, well, unless you don't want the gig. You know, I'm like, no, no, I want the gig. But is that, so this is it. He's yeah. like, this is it. I'm like, yeah. right on. But he, he would play like little games like that a little bit. I think it was more... It was more like just he wanted to see people's reaction. He wouldn't take an obvious conversational path with you. He'd play little games, and I was think he was a I'm, real serious guy. Like or, he was intense. Yeah, he was. He was. Um, but we got along great, and he asked me actually after that tour to do another tour with him. That sub- subsequently, um, and it got it actually got canceled. But I was the only one he would still talk to from that tour. Wow. Um, he usually just sort of, he, he was very private, but he was also very, um, you know, he, he wasn't easy, you know. And I was just a young, open to everything. Everything's great. And I can't believe I'm on a tour bus finally and playing on a stage. I'm playing with Ronnie Montrose. And I had, you know, I had those records, you know, like when he was on, um, you know, Edgar Winter. <laughs> He played on Frankenstein, right? Exactly. I mean, that's him. Wow, wow, the wah wah. That's you know, and on you know, free ride. He's not doing the. the, What's that? But he's a. You know, and he's doing that really heavy lick. Dan Hartman's doing the opening riff, who wrote the song and sang it. But um, and to have those records again, having and and. And then ha- sitting, auditioning with the guy, and then playing and sharing music with him, and him giving me solos on stage and treating me like a peer. I mean, I'm just a punk oh, kid yeah. from Virginia and Florida. And I guess I never, I still feel so fortunate. And then through that, as, as I mentioned, we, as you mentioned, we, we uh, played with Holdsworth. Um, so, well, I shouldn't say we played. We toured with Holdsworth, where one night Alan would open for us. The next night we would open for Alan. And um, Alan loved the tour because there were more girls in the audience than he'd ever seen at any of his shows. Cause, cause Montro- well, because Montrose brought all the rock guys out yeah, yeah, yeah. with the leather jackets the and the long hair and brought their girlfriends along. And then all the girls are like, uh, you know, looking at, well, why is everybody going gaga over this crazy Englishman, like playing these crazy stretchy chords? And, you know, and, and they just became enamored, I think, with Alan. And um, for us, it was, it was very easy to see a distinguishing feature in the audience. When we played, all the Holdsworth fans would be sitting there cross-armed, mm-hmm. looking at us with their heads cocked to the sideways, like whispering to each other, like, pentatonic, 
yeah, just pentatonic shit, man. You know, <laughs> and then Hellsworth would come out and be like, okay, this is like, you know, whatever, some a la mode or something, you know, crazy a la mode. And um, so uh, it was a lot of fun, and I would hang out with Alan. Uh, I I don't drink now, and actually on that tour is the last time I ever had a, a drop of alcohol because I got so drunk one night. Um, but I would hang out with Alan, just me and him talking, and. Um, drinking in his hotel room till like two in the morning and one night I got comfortable enough with him where I never asked him about music I never asked him about guitar it's like what am I I knew better I would ask him about he was into making beer his own Mm -hmm. home brew he was into bicycle riding you know like uh, uh, road road biking and um, I asked him I brought my guitar up one night after show you know after a couple months on the road, I said, Alan, do me a favor, man. So like, sure, Greg, anything, you know? And I said, play the intro to Johnny Be Good. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, exa- he did that. He busted out laughing. And then he went... Yeah. He called his love. He fucking killed it. And then I was just, I was busting up. And he thought it was hilarious. And it makes sense because Chuck Berry in the 50s, all the English guys, I mean, of course, Oldsworth was exploring so much stuff because he started on violin, but he was hearing Chuck Berry like the yeah. Stones were and all this contemporary. So it made sense that er, in his earliest day. And so I thought it was, I wish I had a recording so cool. of that. Because uh, I, mean, I don't think anybody ever asked him to play a Chuck Berry song before. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Well, and I think I was young enough and naive enough that he just thought it was hilarious. You know. Also, Greg, you were... So kind, Greg gifted me a book, which I need to re-gift to you because I don't feel right owning the book. But it's Alan Holdsworth, Reaching for the Uncommon Chord. And when you open it up, it's got, it's signed to Greg. And it's personalized with a nice little note. And I think Alan's Alan's alluding to the fact that all the transcriptions were not completely accurate. He drew these crazy signs, Spock things in it. Right. Yeah, I have it on my nightstand, actually. I was reading it the other night. It's... uh, well, you know, I'm I've, I've, I'm not sentimental about things. I'm, I'm not um, very few things I should say I'm sentimental about. And to me, that was a great gift that I got from Alan. But knowing you loved Alan, and knowing that you love his music, and knowing that you have the sophistication as a player to understand harmonically what's going on, um, I couldn't think of a better person well, to have passed it to. Well, I, you know? That's sweet of you to have, too. I, I, and it's interesting because I don't want to delve into Holdsworth. I want to keep talking about your stuff. But I, I, have, I know people that have worked with him, and, um, and I, I don't think he ever used any sort of conventional charts or anything like that to give the rhythm section. So I don't know how mm-hmm. the hell they... They could; those pieces are really difficult. Yeah, there's a lot of meter changes and yes, you know, the drum chairs like what? right. I don't well, know how they did it. You well, you know? know, I mean, one one particular thing to one particular thing that I do recall from that that tour was, I mean, we were out for several months. I mean, gone. I mean, it was like this is back when you could gig five nights a week and you could keep a band out and not have to bring them back, you know, because you're only playing Friday or Saturday night. We were gone playing all the time, all over the U.S. And the first couple months, probably, yeah, probably first couple months, I, I made sure to never miss a Holter show because I knew it was a gift. I had, I saw him on his first tour in 1982 with IOU when wow. he came from, with his, and I bought this original IOU record. I think it was red vinyl is what it was when I, when the one I got. And um, 
I knew it was like, oh my God, this is Eddie Van Halen's favorite guitar player. Yeah. I'm not going to miss this and guy. Eddie was actually supposed to produce that record. Oh, I didn't know he that. He got him the deal with Warner Brothers. Wow. Oh, But wow. the condition was that he was going to produce Holsworth. And, wow. and the, the, the label said, sure, whatever you want to do, Eddie. He goes, yeah, I want to. But the problem is, is Van Halen extended their tour so long, Alan didn't want to wait. Oh. So he just did it himself. Wow, like, I didn't know that yeah. either. Wow. Yeah, I just, I. I knew it was a gift to be there. Mm. I knew it was a gift to be with Montrose, and even just a, just an unbelievable opportunity to be able to see a man like Alan Holzer hang out and catering, get drunk with him, Johnny be good. But the first couple of months, I would listen to it, and I would just go, "Man, I don't, I don't hear those notes. They're not on my guitar. I'm sending my telly back, you know, Defender, right. like warranty. You know, I <laughs> put those notes on my guitar, but I just couldn't. I can't hear complex harmonic." Um, depth like that you know and uh so for the first couple months i was really frustrated listening to his set because i was trying to i was trying to just break it down reverse engineer it from a guy who grew up playing classic rock and bluesy influenced stuff and i tell you though i had a bit of a i don't know a bit of an epiphany somewhere in there um, in that period of time where I stopped trying to reverse engineer harmonically what was going on. I stopped trying to feel where one was. You know what I mean? I stopped trying to break it down. And all of a sudden I felt like, man, I probably felt like I was at a dead concert. Like you just get taken away. And when I just closed my eyes for the last um, couple months of the, the tour that was up, I didn't, I just, I just let myself be taken by the music. And I responded to it emotionally and it was visceral. It was powerful, and it made me realize, turn the brain off and, and open the heart more mm. to stuff that maybe you don't understand, mm. and you will understand it, but on just a different level. Let's talk about Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles. The final Hendrix drummer, Band of Gypsies. Band of, right. Yeah. And he was a Solaris too, right? He had his, you know, that, you know. Uh. Yeah. So, that's it. Um, Buddy, another thing. I had done a session in San Francisco, probably around 88, because I moved to L.A. in 89. So uh, I did the California Raisins, um, the Dancing Raisins. <laughs> you did that well, they did multiple okay. versions of that commercial because it was a big campaign and it was very successful. And I played on one iteration of those commercials, you know. And Buddy was in the studio and he loved my playing. And we hit it off. And I actually did a show for him, not for him, with him. He needed a guitar player. Typical Buddy. He's always like, you know, it's Thursday night. V, I... I need a guitar player. I gotta, you know, get on the bus. We're heading out tomorrow night. And they're like, it was always, he was always like crash landing or something with people. <laughs> and they quit. 
and then he'd call me right on a couple of occasions so anyways i got the gig with with buddy it was literally that i was down in la he called me and says i need a guitar player you know and like you know i got on the bus on a thursday night we i think the first gig was like santa fe new mexico and i learned they had live tapes and i learned all the music um that i could in that amount of time which was i had to learn a lot of songs they they weren't like so complicated but it's still a lot and you know you're getting on stage with a bad motherfucker um beep and the thing about with with buddy was he wanted you to be you that was beautiful thing because he grew up in that era where guys back then a lot of those you know mid 60 late 60 or 70 guys were like they want you to have some identity on your instrument and buddy was like Listen, you you know, I gave you the tapes. Other guys, just do your thing. Work out the, you know, the stuff I need to hear. You yeah, know, I know where we're at. Banks, you know, yeah. look the, the hooks. And Buddy would just let you play. And every song turned into Freebird. Everything with Buddy was 15 minutes long. Even sound checks were three hours long. Because Buddy didn't want to stop playing unless he was hungry. And there was food. And then he'd like, hey, okay, Joe, that's enough, gentlemen. <laughs> the chicken's here, you know. And I'm not kidding. He would do that. And, um, but he grew up where he was a guy just, he didn't, get, he didn't know what else to do but play. And it was incredible. Playing with Buddy was, I got to be honest, it was probably the highlight of my, my every, everybody that I played with. And the reason... How long did you play with him for? Oh, um, I don't know, it's about three years, give or wow, take. That's, that's give or take. Run. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, it was just constant touring, coming home, going out. I mean, I've got crazy Buddy Miles stories, man. Um... I don't know if you wanted me to delve in any one of I, Yeah, give us, a, give us a choice one. Let's see. Um, okay. This is a, this is a, this is a, a family favorite. Um, so we were playing in Chicago, and we were staying at a small mom-and-pop motel called The Heart of Chicago. I don't, I'll never forget the name. And Buddy, we had a few days off. Yeah. I don't know, like maybe like four or five days, something like that. Buddy left. Just checked us in, left. Nobody, this was before cell phones, right? Nobody knew where he was. And we were out just all cruising around Chicago all day long. We'd come home after, you know, come back to the hotel, motel, like, you know, after a few days. And our, the, the bus is blocked in. They put a pickup truck so we couldn't back out. They locked the, they put locks on the doors so we couldn't get into our rooms. So we were forced to go in the lobby. And there was an, there was an older woman in there. And we all went in there like, hey, hey, we're with the Buddy Miles band or, you know, room 101 to 105 or we can't get in. Like, well, that's right, gentlemen, you know, the credit card that Buddy Miles, Mr. Miles gave us is no longer active. It's not working anymore. <laughs> so, you know, you guys, you know, collectively owe us you know, $1,800 or whatever for, you know, the week's stay or whatever. Right. And um, <clears throat> we go, we don't have any money. Where's Buddy? No, you know, w- one of the guys was able to track Buddy down through a, a mutual, another mutual friend that he thought he might be staying at. Well, Buddy was staying there. He called him, and Buddy says, oh, no problem, I'll, I'll take care of you, I'll take care of it. And so Buddy rings the front office, right? And the, the, the older woman, I mean, these are like in their 70s. It's a woman and her husband who owned this joint. And it's like, oh, oh, yes, hello, Mr. Miles. Yes, oh, yes, I, yes, I have a pen. Do you have a new credit card for us? And, and, and you could hear her go, okay, one moment. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Go, for, go ahead with the number. And you hear her go, okay, 00CZX 
S T one Q R double zero three. And she goes, Okay, well thank you. Thank you. She was flustered. We're on the other side of the, the, the counter. He's so she she's older. She tries out we're all like there's no letters in a Visa card number. <laughs> Buddy was just throwing. And long story short, Buddy, um, they felt so sorry for us. She, she, she didn't have hung up. She knew it was like, it was a scam. And they felt so sorry for us, the, the, the couple, that we said, listen, we need to get back to L.A. because the band was based in L.A. We'll give you Buddy Miles' drum set from underneath the, the bus. And you can take it and sell it. It's Buddy Miles, Jimmy and X drummer. It's worth some bread. And they're like, well, okay, well, you know, we're not sure what we'll do it. So we wow. set it. We set up his drum set in the lobby. <laughs> and they moved. They drove us. The bus split. They drove us to the airport, this old couple. Wow. Dropped us off. A few weeks later, this is classic Buddy. A few weeks later, I get a phone call at home. You know, and it's like, hello. And they're like, V, it's Buddy Miles. I'm like, hey, bud, what's up, man? He's like, well, we're getting ready to hit the road again. I'm like, okay, well, where are you at? He says, I'm staying at the heart of Chicago where y'all's was at. I'm like, you're staying there? He's like, yeah, it's a lovely place. And so he was able to like pull these scams off on people and and then get them to like give them the shirt off their back, you know? And uh, yeah, I used to call Buddy. I said, Buddy, when you, when you used to play Europe, did they call you Buddy Kilometers? And he thought, he thought that was funny. That's a dumb joke, but he thought it was funny. But Buddy was, uh, yeah, I mean, when you got on stage and he came up and laid into just the first measure, you know, it was like the stage levitated, the crowd. He could sing every woman's heart and um, unbelievably charismatic. And the 22 hours on bus was hell sometimes versus the two hours on stage. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Is there any of that stuff on YouTube or that you know about? You know, this is way before yeah. cell phones. And, you know, I mean, um, there may be because stuff just seems to pop up here or there. But um, unfortunately, I've only got a handful of pictures and things like that that even that, that are really special to me. You know, um, they're not amazing pictures. Anyway. It's just like, well, it does document. I was with Buddy Miles. Yeah. You know? And yeah, it was... Uh, I got a million stories like that, but that's a, that was a fun one, you know. Yeah. Well, you want to play something a little bit, or uh, you want to play some things for yourself, or you want, um, to, you want to just we just sort of no, meandered. We could do know. something. Just do anything, you know. Like, um,
Two chords and the truth. <laughs> I believe it's called. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to play with you, but it's it's um, to all you listeners, it's it's really intimidating because Shane Terrio is no, like Mothra, no. Godzilla, King Kong, and Ultraman, <laughs> all rolled into one. And I'm like, you know, uh, how come there are only Japanese uh, uh, references there, Greg? King Kong? Is King, King Kong? Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> no, but you're, you're, no, that's not true. No, man, it's fun playing with you. Thank um, you. So tell me about Double Trouble. Now you've now we've been through, man, all this stuff from from Baywatch to Buddy Miles, <laughs> right. and now you're about to hit Austin. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because uh, I grew up an army brat. I've always had a bit of wanderlust moving around. I moved around a lot. Even when I came to California, you know, San Francisco a million times, different locations, L.A. And we had lived in Hawaii, as I mentioned earlier about that Leon Wilkinson story with Skinner. And after a while, you kind of get what, what they call island fever. I was surfing in the daytime, playing in a great band. But I felt like, man... I, I, I want something more. I feel like I can still, you know, go for it. So um, we moved to Austin. I convinced my wife to move to Austin, Texas, and didn't know anybody there. And uh, landed there. So I met a guy uh, in a music store there. He invited me down to 6th Street and where all the bars are there. And I started playing down there. And um, that got me a little bit of a leg up. And then Buddy Miles, again, called me out of the blue. He was up in Dallas now, who was staying with who knows, you know. And uh, V, man, hey, it's Buddy Miles. <laughs> Putting the band back together, you know. <laughs> Putting the unit back exactly, together. Exactly, <laughs> right? We're all getting back together. So there's all different band members now, of course. Of course I didn't know any of them, right? Because yeah. this is years later. This is like 90, oh no, wait, 2001. Oh, okay. 2000, 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. This is years later. And so... I'm like, man, I need a gig. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. And Buddy, <clears throat> he, he dropped the pay. He lowered the money. I mean, it used to be 150 a night, which is not good bread even back then. But sadly, it's a lot more money than some bands will pay you now, you know, sadly. Um, not big artists, but, yeah. you know, some smaller stuff, especially like local. But even in Florida, though, on a quick note, when I was in, you know, I was making 75, 100 bucks a night in the 70s. And that's still what people are making. Mm. But, you know, peas and carrots and, you know, celery's gone up. And <laughs> bus drivers are getting paid more. But musicians, yeah, it's a whole other topic, you know. But anyways, um, I was playing with Buddy. I did a show where Chris and Tommy, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon, who were uh, with Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh, rhythm section called Double Trouble, they were there and playing as well. And uh, I didn't have the balls to talk to him. I was like, man, these are like, you know, revered dudes. It was a really cool, it was a big concert with a bunch of different artists. And I was playing right. Buddy. So anyways, I get back to Austin. I started meeting a few people. And I met Malford Milligan, who was a mm -hmm. great um, <clears throat> singer with a band called Storyville, which had Chris and Tommy, Double Trouble, was the rhythm section. He heard me play and he liked my playing. So uh, I got a phone call one day at a friend's house. And it was Chris Layton, the drummer. Whipper is his nickname. Yeah. He's like, hey, Grace. Whipper and Slut. They yeah, called Tommy Shane. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. See, there, I didn't we know. We were that. on the road with Storyville for a while. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway. No, that, I mean, again, I, uh, anecdotes I didn't know. And so he's like, hey, you know, 
you're the guitar player of Bunny Miles, right? And I say, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, you sound good. We're, we're putting a, we got a record coming out. We're putting a band together. Um, you want to play guitar with us? I'm like, yeah. And he, he's like, well, I'll drop by later where you live, and I'll drop by a CD of the songs. You know, we can work them up. We can play a little bit. So we did go to we go to our first rehearsal. And I mean, I'm man, I'm scared to death in Austin alone just before even this because it's such a revered town yeah. a, and a, such a guitar town, right? And um, I don't, you know, I'm not a great blues player. I mean, I come, I come from blues via rock, yeah, not blues to rock, right. you know, different connection there. And um, thank God they weren't looking for Stevie Ray. They didn't need nobody's going to be Stevie. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was a whole different thing. They put a record out where they had Doyle Bramhall. Mm-hmm. As guitar, one of the guitar players in the song, they had Eric Johnson, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. They had all these guest artists on this record, and Susan Tedeschi. Um, and at the first rehearsal, after the first song, they all stopped and clapped and gave wow. me, kind of gave me like, like, hey man, you you're in. I'm like, first I was like, I took a big breath, like that was like a really gracious thing for them to do, but it also made me really more comfortable from that mm. moment on because I felt like. Okay, I don't have to fight for this. What a cool thing for him to do. That was really nice. Malford, and it was beautiful. So, yeah, that was, um, I was in and out of Austin, I don't know, in less than a year. And most of that time was on the road with Double Trouble. And it was, again, an incredible experience, you know. Um, uh, Got to know Susan Tedeschi, who would come out and do some guest nights with us and so forth. And it was just, it was just, uh, I mean, God, I mean, again, being a kid. Stevie Ray, and then the, it's one thing to like hear these people's music, but it's another when you, it's a different thing to just meet them. But then it's even a whole other thing where they ask you to participate in playing music with them right. and sharing the stage with them. Let's do it. Let's give them a big Austin welcome. It's Chris Layton, Tommy Shannon, Double Trouble. One highlight I remember with that was we played in Austin with uh, and Jimmy Vaughn sat in with us, and um, we were we were doing a tune, and I was just supposed to get one round of soloing, and I did my you know I look over I figured Jimmy's got well, there was no rehearsal or uh, you know it was nothing like hey let's work it out with you know Jimmy Vaughn let him take everything, and but. So at early on, they were like, okay, uh, if, if uh, Jimmy wants to do a solo, let him. But if, if you're going to do it, just do one round of soloing, right? One verse. So I look over. Jimmy gives me sort of that ZZ top wave of the hand, like points at me to take a solo. I, I go through my solo. I look over about to end it, you know, on the big note or something to make a little bit. Of, I got to end it on a statement, you know. And he gives me another wind up of the hand, like take another one. And I'm like... Holy shit, I just got asked back to the buffet, you know, <laughs> with Jimmy Long, you know. And that was really, again, mm. another beautiful moment, man. Mm. Yeah, real special. It's a great story, man. Yeah. yeah. 
what what were you using the super reverbs or whatever the, the Texas yeah about, I mean I choice was the yeah you know it's funny man, I actually had four super reverbs that's not what I took on the road but I had they all sound a little different you just turn them all the way up no, I mean, I, I had I run on about six, you know, I remember just where they're on a really nice breakup. I had ones that would break up like at four mm. and then I had a couple that were louder in headroom and I needed that with Tommy Shannon because I stood next to Tommy and he was a loud bass. He was a great bass player, man. Mm. Played with Johnny Winter and mm -hmm. he was at Woodstock with Johnny Winter, you know, and what, you know, Johnny Winter's not an original Woodstock movie, but he's on the Lost Tapes and mm. he's incredible at that show. Um, but yeah, I, did, I used a super reverb. I used a pro reverb and... Um, I would use them combined, you know, wow. I wouldn't switch between them because I needed that, that horsepower. And then also had a car, um, Steve Carr, I just know, just met and he was starting his amp company and I had gotten a car Imperial, which is a really loud, sort of almost like a twin reverb with a little bit more um, grit to it when you wound it up. So a lot of headroom on that, you know, but I had a bunch of vintage gear back then. Yeah. Mm. And um, uh, I just, you know, I used a tape echo or old Roland Space Echo. Wow, I used that for like 10 years. And, um, you know, I never had really complicated rig setup. You know, I just kept really, really pretty much my whole world of playing was, you know, I had some missteps in buying gear and stuff like that. But I had like a Marshall Super Tremolo 100 watt Plexi and that was stolen with that Les Paul Custom. Mm. And my telly got stolen. I had a early uh, 70s, late 60s probably telly that I bought in Florida for 100 bucks. That was stolen. Everything got stolen. And um, yeah, so but so I had to kind of rebuild from that, you know. And then I, you know, I discovered vintage gear, and um, you know, and still to this day, I mean, uh, you know, to me, there's nothing better for my my playing than a a Tele, a, a Tweed Deluxe, and a and a Memory Man, and maybe a Tremolo pedals just for a little bit of you know you know wobble, you know. Yeah. But um, I could write ten records with just that setup, you know, and or just. These guitars were playing. I, I pretty much just play acoustic at home. I barely plug in anymore. Mm -hmm. And because, um, uh, you know, it, you can't lie on an acoustic. No, it's there's, just, there's, you know, you got to be into to, to metal. Right. And exactly. That's it, man. Your right hand or your picking hand. Is yeah, it's a lot of nuance, out. you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, why don't we talk about your, your solo record, man? Tailgate Troubadour. That was a really great record. You got a lot of fans of that record, man, still, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it was, it's one of those, how did this come about? You know, like how people heard it, how it, um, where people embraced it. Because uh, I was really, well, first of all, let me back up. I put that record out not to be a solo guitar player. It wasn't like, hey, here's my flag on the moon. It was more like, I would meet people, I would meet different artists, and somebody might say, hey, Greg's a good guitar player, you might want to bring him in your project. And then inevitably, somebody would say, well, what, what, you know, who have you played with? And I would say, well, you know, I played with Ronnie Montrose. And you could see everybody put that little dotted line box around you, like, up, 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 like, trying to define you. Oh, you must be a 70s classic rock, you know, bad motor scooter guy, you know? And I'm like, no, not, not that. Well, who else you were with? Buddy Miles. Oh, you must be a 60s psychedelic, you know, headband guy. You know, no, I'm not really that. And oh, Colin Hay, I, pl I played with Colin Hay from Men at Work. Oh, you must be a Vegemite sandwich, skinny tie, J.J. <laughs> Jackson MTV guy, right? I'm like, no. So I got tired of like being sort of like trying to explain who I was. So I thought the best thing, man, would be to make a record that showed where my heart 
my center of my heart was. And that's how Tailgate Troubadour came about. I see. Yeah. And it's an instrumental record. Um, and uh, again, I None based... those pesky vocals to get in the way. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to hire anybody. Yeah, no no lyrics to worry about. Yeah, right? I don't want to hear any more about exactly. love. <laughs> exactly. Or hell yeah. No more hell yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I... I uh, at that time, I, I made a conscious decision. I had a bunch of different instruments. I like had, a, you know, of course, acoustic, electric, and I had mando guitar, which is sort of like, I call it like a, you know, a, a, a hammer dulcimer or something. Mm. It has a really chimey, really brilliant uh, vibe to it. And I had a baritone and dobro, square neck dobro, and I played lap steel. So I looked at that record as like, each song I looked at as, as a little short movie, a little short story. And I would bring those instruments, different instruments in, as as different actors. So on one on one song, I might have lap steel and a baritone, and everybody, all the other instruments, I say go to catering and eat bananas or whatever on this fruit bowl, you know. And I would just use those instruments, and I love the juxtaposition of those voices that I brought up. So I love playing those instruments. I love being able to sort of. Um, think about which instruments would be best tuned and voiced and so forth to work together. And I changed it up. So not every song had a super reverb in a telly. Mm -hmm. every, some songs might have, there were acoustic songs. Some songs were a little more up-tempo. You know, majority of it's a bit dark and a bit melancholic because I was going through a really rough period with my, my wife who had been diagnosed with cancer that year. And so my mind was really uh, all over. It, it couldn't hold on to a thought for very long. And um, that come, came out in the music where it was a bit melancholic. And I even do a version of um, Amazing Grace on there. And that's the last song anybody really needs to cut again. But I did it as a demo and I played it for some friends. And they were like, you got to put that on the record, man. I'm like, who needs to hear that again? Amazing Grace, come on. They're like, no, no, you're doing sort of a Lenoir, very dark, moody, atmospheric thing to it. And the reason I, I tell you about that particular track is I put a solo in there which is sort of my primal scream of what I was feeling emotionally with seeing what my wife was suffering through. And as a man, you want to fix everything. You know, you go to Home Depot, you buy the tool, you buy the piece of lumber, you fix it. But you can't fix cancer. It doesn't work like that. So I felt very um, alone in the sense that I couldn't help her and seeing her suffer. And that solo was my sort of yelling at the ether or God if you will, I'm not a religious person, but I'm spiritual. And that is a very angry solo amidst the beauty of, of, of the melody. Uh, Jack Spurs can sing all the music.
And then there's just other elements in there, a little bit of, you know, pseudo bluegrass. I'm not a bluegrass player, but, you know, um, I've always liked to listen to it, you know. Um, and a lot of little different inflections of things like that. You know? mm. So, and surprisingly, as you mentioned, um, it was just the internet had started, right? And it got out on some forums and I was in, fortunately, Vintage Guitar reviewed it and then did a story on me in there. And that just led to more and more people sort of um, discovering it. And I think, I think it was different enough because it wasn't a shred record. I didn't want to make a Guitars Gone Wild record, you know, because you're not going to get gigs with singers playing like that. Nobody's ever gotten a gig playing with a singer um, strictly because they could shred and rip. I mean, you had to be able to play rhythm. You got to be able to play a variety of different feels. Mm -hmm. And the type of eclectic artists that I've been fortunate to work with were none of them were ever about you shred. You had to be able to play. Right. You had to be able to step up and solo, but it wasn't about crazy guitar stuff. It was still trying to play within context of the music. Mm -hmm. And that's always been what the music I've been drawn to for forever, you know, because mm -hmm. he was a kid. Well, it's a beautiful record, man. Thank you. Do you have any particular favorite cut, one or two that um, stick out? You I know, mean, Amazing I mean, Grace, obviously. What's that? I said yeah, Grace, I mean, Amazing Grace is cool. I mean, uh, I mean, I like them all. They're kind of like your, yeah. your little babies, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's a common saying, but really they're, they, they, they show different facets to my playing. Um, one in particular is, um, it's actually, I think it's the last song on the record, if I think of the sequence, called uh, After All the Miles. And that's a reference, to, well, ending the record after all the years of playing at that point. And even the reference to the title Tailgate Troubadour is about me having traveled my entire life and music being the one constant mm. through that sequence of moves and so forth. And so this is a little bit of that. You sure. Know? Okay. Yeah. long after I met you when you moved back to Los Angeles you you kind of I don't want to say abandoned but you put away the guitar for a while and sold a bunch of gear and bought yeah. camera equipment and now you <laughs> and you and man I've watched you develop it I mean you have a brilliant eye and I mean you know I've Thank seen you. your shots I mean um, you, are you ever going to start playing guitar again or like what I know you're digging being a photographer and doing all these videos for companies because it's very creative you're a very creative person so you get to still express yourself but will you think you'll pick up the guitar again and yeah um well I I never really I shouldn't say I never put the guitar down completely you know I 
it just sort of took a back seat in the creative process for me. And um, this kind of stems back to uh, all the years of playing, all the years of touring, um, a few things out of that. Uh, it's taken its toll on my, my hearing. I don't, I have good hearing when I'm in sort of a quiet environment. You know, I can, I'm, I'm fine in that. In the studio, even listening low volume, I'm, I'm good. But when I, when I was in Nashville, um, and the last tour and I did, um, I think probably the last gig might have been Jewel. You know, I, I did a few dates with her. And it just got, it just got to the point where I, I don't hear well on loud stages, you know. And uh, people were like, well, just get in-ear monitors. And like, no, I didn't grow up with in-ear monitors. I grew up when you want to hear more drums, you step three feet back to the drum rise, you hear more drums. Right. You want to hear more vocals, you step up near the front wedges, you know. I don't ever like being trapped by in-ear monitors. That, that mix is what you got. Yeah. Not to mention the guitar never sounds as good if it can't no, breathe with some air around good. it, you know. Yeah, it doesn't. So... When I started doing those videos in Nashville, I was like, okay, this is cool. I can stay home. I don't have to get on a tour bus and, and playing the same music over and over again. And a lot of those artists want you to play just like the record, the solos that you didn't play. And it just became like, man, well, I just like paint by numbers. I'm, I was, I'm in a cover band, cause, but with maybe a bigger name artist. Because you're not, you're, you're not, you didn't write the songs. You were on the record, you know? So it became like, well, yeah, this is, you know. I've seen that movie enough, you know, and then playing with a bunch of artists after a while, I was like, man, you peek behind the magic curtain of some of these artists. And you're like, man, it's best you don't even know about these people, because when you when you're in the room with them or on the bus with them where you see how they are in real life, it's like it take it, it demystifies so much. You realize the rabbits are running amok backstage, you know, and, you know, it's not that finely tuned magic trick or magic show, you think, you know, so that combined with um, wanting to just stay home more um, and getting into the demo videos, which led me into photography, as I mentioned at the start of our conversation, um, led me down to like, man, I just got consumed with trying to capture things around me, whether it's whether it's a landscape or whether it's uh, some artful um, storefront that's really got some age and some vibe to it. Or most most dramatically that I'm drawn to is portraits of people mm -hmm. and predominantly musicians, artists, because I come from that. I understand that. I can communicate that. And that's sort of been a, a real primary focus of me to, to shoot people's... Uh, well, I mean, it was... We worked together when, 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 um, when I went down to New Orleans yeah. and I, I shot... I mean, if I could say this, no, no jive... I shot some beautiful photos of you, yeah. and I have some of them hanging on my wall. Yeah, you were there yeah. for three days. Exactly, and, and we went all over town. And we went in the park at like midnight, and Greg set up lights everywhere. That's and right, and, and we shot in your house. Rooftops, yeah, yeah. All through my house. And because you, you've got a 150-year-old Civil War era home, mm -hmm. that's like every corner of that house is like is like a, a, a Dolly painting or something. Mm -hmm. It's just it's like oh my, we got to shoot here, man. You know, it was yeah. like I, I worked you hard. I remember, yeah, but yeah. it was like because. Well, it was so yeah. it was such an inspiring place to be and to be with you as well you know and and um so yeah shooting um like records for your last record that I did right. uh, still motion yep right you know beautiful record and it's an honor to have i mean truly it's an honor that artists like yourself feel compelled enough with the photography that i captured them 
feel like it speaks to who they are as a creative person. And that is how they want to wrap their music with those images. And I, could, I can't think of a more gracious gift of that, you know? Um, well, you've taken some great shots. I see your, your posts on Instagram all the time. The one of Slash stepping on the Wawa pedal. <laughs> yeah, That's that was such cool. such a killer shot. I mean, yeah. you guys should check out Greg's website. And um, George Lynch, he did the, the Lynch Mob. Uh, yeah, the last record shoot. they did. Yeah, in the desert, like the Mad Max sort of. Exactly. They yeah. wanted sort of that 70s, high, lonesome, you know, Clint Eastwood, yeah. dusty cowboy thing, which I thought was really cool because, yeah. I mean, that, I can do that. I mean, if you wanted to go down on the, you know, like to shoot a metal album cover, I'm probably not that guy, you know. But, you know, George is more than that. He's a really, he's a great guitar player. You oh, know? yeah. And he's a funny a guy, too. Is he really? So funny. Met him. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, so it's the, the photography. I guess I like to tell people I have a telly in one hand and I have a camera in the other. Uh-huh. And they both come from the same creative source, which is my heart, my soul. So the medium is just a different thing, you know, one's photos, one's music. And um, I'm in, you know, I, I would like to, you know, people ask me for many years to make a follow-up record um, to Tailgate Troubadour. And I have tons of songs. It's not a question of music. Um, I, I mean, I have tons of stuff comes to me. Really, I'm gonna, I don't want to make this sound egotistical or anything. Writing songs is not the hardest thing for me. Um, it comes pretty easy. I just let the instrument flow um, and things come. Of course, I'm not doing big thematic guitar crazy stuff. I'm just doing very ethereal, what I call cinematic or like soundtracks without a movie. That's the way I write because I see images in my brain when I compose music. So that's another connection of photography to me. Um, I'd love to make another record. I've always threatened to do another record. And the, the thing is, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it's with the internet now, pe- people are not really buying records, so they're streaming. Right. And release the notion of making a record to us makes a lot of sense where we grew up with a theme or maybe a real bigger picture of, a, that's how my Tailgate Jupiter certainly had a theme about it. But nowadays, people are just releasing one songs, like almost singles, like the 50s all over again, like a 45 or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that concept. And the idea of a LP, long play record, and con- conceptual and stuff is, you know, for the most part, has kind of gone away. There are certainly artists that are doing it, like yourself and so forth. But I just don't know if I can monetarily create the type of record that I would like because it you know takes thousands of dollars yeah, and I don't realize yeah I mean that's why I haven't done anything either to be honest with you because it's yeah. just not really worth it well yeah and you put it out there and then people just copy or download yeah. and or stream it and you get very little to to per stream you know and you know it really you know um, music is so much of my identity um, but now when I pick up a guitar I don't pick it up with the idea of touring with anybody, I pick it up for the just free sense of self-expression and the the love of exploring it the way I did when I first picked it up at 13 yeah. and a half. So it's kind of come full circle. And um, I'll always have it. And I've even said to my wife, if if I lose my hearing, you know, um, we're to the point where, you know, I won't be able to f- hear the instrument. I'll still be able to feel the guitar shake to me. It's almost, and I feel like I could still hear the notes. But if 
if God forbid, if the, my hearing goes, you know, that far down, I still have photography as long as a finger can work to push the shutter button. Mm. So I feel they, they overlap, one parlays into the other, and at this point now, they're sort of indistinguishable uh, in terms of um, where my creative spirit comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't thank you enough, Shane, you oh, know, to have me on the, the, for, the, the, yeah, the podcast. I mean, I've known you a long time, and I didn't know a lot of these stories. Great, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, you know, we all, we all get these little home movies that we acquire over our life. And, you know, um, sometimes in the moment, you don't think if they're funny. You don't know actually how transformative, I think is the right word. They might be in the moment. But then you get to, you know, you get older and you become more reflective and you look back on some things, and you go, you know, I, you know, I had a good run, man. If my hands fell off tomorrow, I was just a punk kid from Virginia who loved to play. My daddy bought me a cool guitar and never knew where it might take me. And uh, it's, it's all been um, truly, even the worst of times with, with the instrument or different artists, it's been truly a gift for mm -hmm. me. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I meet some players my age and stuff, and they, they you know, or older with that, or younger even, they get quite bitter. They get quite, they feel like life owes them more. You know, they feel like music owes them more. They didn't get their chance or, or they squandered it or something. Um, and to me, man, I'm, I, I, I'm so, so fortunate. And I no jive with that, man. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm the luckiest guy. Well, hopefully you'll keep making music. Pick up that damn guitar. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for thanks again, man. You want to buy my Martin? <laughs> All right. If you're still listening, you're still here with me. Thank you so much hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together yeah Greg's great stories check out his record tailgate troubadour check out his website Greg Vorobioff.com v-o-r-o-b-i-o-v if you want to support me you know buy some music follow me on Instagram leave me a nice review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you listen that means a lot See you next time.